The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Ken, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? <laughs> Today, we are going to be learning about modern women in the Muslim world who were leaders in the last century. All right, let's get into this. Woo. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we're going to be asking the question, is there space for female Islamic leaders today? And we're joined on the podcast once again for the third time, Dr. Shahala Hayri. She is a professor at Boston University and the author of the book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. And Earlier on the podcast, we interviewed her about the first two parts of her book, one mm-hmm. looking at early Islamic history and um, how that really set the tone and the culture um, and the way that women were viewed and respected, um, and in particular, how certain um, hadiths credited to Muhammad that are kind of debated um, may have laid the groundwork for excluding women from leadership. And then we looked at the medieval period in the second episode with um, Dr. Hayri. And in that episode, we really saw how women were able to find pathways to the throne in, you know, subsequent centuries in the medieval era and how that they were semi-successful leaders um, in their time. But the same Hadith and the same culture mm-hmm. that impacted women in those two periods r- persist in the Muslim world today, as the same, you know, issues in our in our Western culture persist today. In this episode, we're going to be looking at two women. One of them is from Pakistan, the other one is from Indonesia, and how. These women have risen to prominence within their culture. They've gotten to the highest positions. And Dr. Hayri is a wealth of knowledge and is so versed, having lived in the Muslim world. Um, and I'm so excited to have her with us today. Yeah. Can't wait to listen again. She's such a rock star. But also just more about modern women, which I'm really curious to learn more about. Yeah. Well, let's have her introduce herself to our audience. Yay. Well, good to meet you again. My name is Shahla Hayri. I'm a professor of anthropology at Boston University. We're here today to talk about the last, the third part, third section of your book, where you talk about Muslim women leaders today and 
In this section, you have two leaders that you discuss. And I'm curious why you picked these two women in particular. And are they the only two that have really reached that sort of status in, in modern history? Well, let me answer the, the last part of your question first. They're not the only two women uh, who have reached such high level of office holding, such a high level of political authority. But the reason I, uh, the reasons I uh, selected them to include in my book, and just parenthetically, I didn't want to have just a survey book. I wanted to give them, to give the characters or the leaders, women leaders I have used in my book, to give them enough space or myself enough room to be able to talk about them. Um, more than that, the book would be just a survey and not really something substan uh, substantive, substantial. Um, to begin with, Benazir Bhutto uh, was the first democratically elected woman in a Muslim country. And that was in 1988. If you can imagine, at that time, uh, uh, not in very many countries, including in Europe and in the US or other places, we had. Uh, women political leaders, when particularly uh, women running for a political office. And in fact, she started it in the 70s, you know, uh, right after her father was um, uh, assassinated, basically, you know, arrested uh, by his own uh, chief of army, arrested, uh, jailed, and eventually hanged, despite the international protest uh, against uh, his execution. So it was from then on that she became politically active and very determined to have a voice, a say in the politics of her country. So she was an obvious choice. She was the only uh, woman in the Muslim world, democratically elected, very popular, highly popular. And in fact, as I said, not very many women, even in the West, had gained so much power and authority and visibility and voice and popularity. So that was a popular choice, plus the fact that I had written a book on Pakistan. I lived in Pakistan, and I was interested in um, that society. I found um, Pakistani women extremely, um, well, some of them, very powerful and very um, knowledgeable, uh, good politicians. So that was an obvious choice. And Megavati... Sukarno Putri was the first woman president, head of the state, not head of the government, head of the state. So in that sense, she was also the first choice because for both of them, the publicity against them was very um, vocal. And both of them were subjected to a particular hadith, that is to say, a saying attributed to Prophet Muhammad against having women to become uh, leaders, uh, political office holders of the countries. So in that sense, uh, she also became a logical um, choice. But by no means, they were the only ones. Uh, I mean, gradually, by the end of the 20th century and 23rd century, there are more and more women leaders in the Muslim world and all over the world. You mentioned the first woman, Benazir Bhutto. She's from Pakistan, and you mentioned that she comes to power and, and really gets involved in politics in the aftermath of her father's, what you called assassination or execution. 
And um, so I'm just curious, what is significant about her rise and her path to power in the, in that time period? Uh, that's an excellent question because we do need to understand uh, the kinds of paths that are open to women to gain political power. It's not an easy road to take by many women. Of course, it's becoming easier and easier all over the world. But imagine in Pakistan, which is a highly conservative uh, society in the 70s, you need to have certain conditions for anybody, not just women, for both men and women to enable them to gain political power and authority. Benazir Bhutto was a daughter of a feudal family, a very famous old feudal uh, clan in Pakistan. Not only that, they were highly, uh, uh, um, I mean, they were very wealthy, of course. They were, they had huge amount of lands and, of course, education. So she had all these um, elements working in her favor. She was the daughter of the prime minister and uh, president of Pakistan. She was a member of this uh, hugely popular and uh, wealthy feudal family. And she was educated, highly educated, and belonged to the family that also valued education and support of the woman. In addition to that, in addition to being a member of the Bhutto dynasty, she was favored by her father. The father was a lot more interested in her than in his own firstborn son. And in fact, later on in their lives, Dina Zibuto's brother, Morteza, became her nemesis, became her rival. But initially, what helped her was this dynastic ties, the connection to the family, the connection to the power and privileges that the family had traditionally maintained in Pakistan. That makes sense. Okay. So I guess my next question is, I was struck when I was reading your book about the role that the international community played in this entire saga, um, whether it be condemning the execution of her father, um, but also supporting her coming to power. So um, would you mind touching a little bit on the role that the international community and the United States played in that? I mean, you know, our world is very interconnected, right? Yeah. I mean, look what's happening in um in Ukraine right now, and the international community responding to that. Uh, it was the same way uh, in Pakistan. And of course, remember, in the 70s, that whole area, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, that whole parts of the Middle East, although none of them are uh, um, properly part of the Middle East because they're in Asia, West Asia, the Russians had invaded Afghanistan. Iran had was about to have this revolution, you know, the society was going through changes. And of course, Zulfakar Bhutto in Pakistan had become very popular, but also he, he had claims to being more independent. And not only independent, but also wanting to have nuclear power, right? So he moved more and more towards Russia and China, which made the West quite upset. Uh, and given the fact that the Russians was at the threshold of Afghanistan, then that created a sort of a threat to the West. I mean, whether it was with the connivance of the West, I don't know. But when he was uh, overthrown by his own chief of army staff, 
there wasn't much of the uh, international uproar. Maybe, you know, some people, but the U.S. could have been a lot more vocal. Not only they weren't vocal, they gave a lot of money to Ziaul Haq, who created a military regime in Pakistan. So the U.S. was very much involved in what's happening in that part of the world. And given the fact that at that time the world was bipolar, you know, we had the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc. So any of these countries that seem to move, I mean, these third world, the so-called third world countries that seem to move closer to one direction or another would pose potentially a threat to these superpowers, Mm. right? Uh, Mr. Bhutto was um, overthrown and hanged and Benazir was jailed for a long time. I mean, she was harassed constantly, but she did have her supporters in the U.S., Mr. Peter Galbraith, you know, who uh, whose father was uh, was very important in the government of uh, Mr. Reagan, was very instrumental in getting her released from General Zia's um, prison and leave the country. By then, you know, that's ni- 1984 when she was um, released from the from jail or at least from the house arrest. So she became she left for Europe and she. Uh, gathered her father's uh, followers behind her and started uh, campaigning for um, political change. Now, by then, things had changed in Pakistan as well, right? Here you had a very interesting young uh, leader, popular in her own country, attractive to outside world. And also Ziaul Haq had lost its allure to the West. So she got huge support because before that they wouldn't even see her but by this time after you know the establishment of this um, military dictatorship in or military religious dictatorship in Pakistan then her credentials as someone more pro democratic um institutions and political system became a lot more visible so then she was allowed. She came to America. She was supported by um, various um, leaders. Um, she went back to Pakistan. She was an intrepid leader. I mean, she would go anywhere, and and she was this young woman. You know, I mean, in her early thirties, she would go everywhere and um, campaign uh, for um, for for her um, office. And pe- people who had already been oppressed or angry about what had happened. I mean, many people felt regret about the fact that they didn't support uh, her father or that they just went along with the uh, military regime. For whatever reasons, for a variety of reasons, she was gaining a lot more power back there. And she capitalized on people's um, uh, yearning for um, democracy, for uh, freedom, for a, a leader that provided them with a breath of fresh air. So yes, International politics was important, but what was de- determinant uh, in terms of who would become a leader was her own uh, um, political system, her own popularity in her own country. And then at the end, it was providential because General Zia got ex- <laughs> got killed in a plane explosion. So we can say the divine justice also helped her, not only international politics, you know, you had national and international but also God intervened, <laughs> we <Wow>. can say. <laughs> so we've got this well-traveled Western 
woman, sort of, uh, in Pakistan. And uh, eventually you wrote that she agreed to an arranged marriage, uh, begins covering. And this is really shocking to her friends and relatives who know her because that's not really the type of woman, Muslim woman that she is. So I'm, I, why do you think she did that? <laughs> what was that? Well, about? I think she was, she was very perceptive. She was very smart. Again, um, on the one hand, you can understand her in the context of her, her own cultural, conservative culture. On the other hand, think about our politicians in this country, the way they try to uh, respond to the popular and public opinion, right? She was quite smart. I mean, she knew that she is a woman, a young woman in her own culture. If you do not have the support of a man, I mean, even in this country as well, although things have changed, but I am old enough to remember in this country, you wouldn't be having a woman leader if she was not married. That wasn't a condition for that, but we just didn't have it because the tradition was that women were to be having uh, to be married. She was smart enough to realize that she needed to have a support. It's not that this was an arranged marriage as much as it is said. She knew the man, this man. I mean, the family knew her. The, the families, I mean, you know, I've lived in Pakistan to know how this uh, elite families know each other. So she agreed. And that man turned out to be not uh, intellectually uh, uh, on par with her, but he was supportive throughout her uh, life. He was very supportive of her. Now, to cover her hair, again, was a very smart thing to do. I mean, that covering was actually gave her greater allure, that gave her greater uh, beauty, shall we say, because the way she wore that, I mean, it hardly covered her hair. She had, you know, her makeup on and she had her beautiful dresses on, you know, so it really, it just was more of a um, response, shall we say, to her culture's demand for piety, propriety, um, you know, um, tradition. And she was she was a smart, she understood. It didn't matter. It didn't mean that she lost her brain just before she put the scarf <laughs> on. In fact, it conveyed how smart she was, how intelligent she was, how perceptive she was reading the cultural mood and realizing that if you want to have that high positions, you have to give certain concessions. And that's what she did. She's democratically elected and what kind of leader is she? Is she successful, uh, you know, in kind of a divided time? Or is, are people grateful for someone who is bringing democracy? What what sort of leader is she? Well, that really requires another um, book. <laughs> no, seriously, because think about that. In Pakistan society, first of all, the political system is very young because Pakistan was basically created in 1947, even though Structurally, it's a very traditional society, but it's also a very diverse society. It's very multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural, plus the fact that it has huge class differences and imbued with some caste uh, sentiment remnant from their uh, cultural uh, inheritance from India, even though they tell you and officially Caste does not exist in Pakistan, but the 
impact of caste system, the distinctions people make, the differences that people maintain among themselves or classes, it's very obvious. It's very there. And I saw it and I felt it and it was just right there. So for anybody to be a good leader and to be a woman and a young woman at that, to be a leader, you have to jump through many loops. And people, your opponents, make the dandest to prevent you from doing that. That's why you need to create all kinds of uh, alliances, support systems, which she got it in terms of her, her husband, which was basically she had to rely on male political elites, some of whom were competing with her or didn't want her to begin with, right? So how do you do that? How do you manage that? And in fact, again, speaking of international politics or intervention of international politics or impact of international politics, is the time that she was dismissed the first time in 1990, almost a year and a half after she had become, she had been elected and become the prime minister, was after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And the U.S. attention went to Kuwait. And in Pakistan, Ghulam Isha Khan, who was the president, a friend of General Zia, saw the moment opportune to kick her out and accuse her of uh, corruption, right? Because the president had the right to dismiss the prime minister. And that right had been given to the president under General Zia. It wasn't in the constitution until General Zia came to power. So you see how national international politics can work to frustrate the policies, programs of any leader. So she really was not able to achieve as much as she had wanted to. And as I mentioned in the book, there were three men who did the damnedest to prevent her from getting any of her policy, uh, policies done. One was the president, Ghulam Khan, who was a friend of the former General Zia, who was the president. Another was uh, the head of the intelligence inter-service, Hamid Gul. And uh, the third was the head of the military. I forgot the name. But anyways, I talk about three uh, trika, you know, men uh, who created all kinds of problems for her to be able to uh, manage her policies. And, you know, plus the fact that, uh, you know, a year and a half later, Ulam Esauhan dismissed her from her position and dissolved the parliament. So it was difficult for her to be the kind of leader that she wanted to and to rely on people who would honestly deal with her and help her to promote her policies and to get them over. And parenthetically, in Pakistan, even up to this day, in fact, Imran Khan is now under the threat, the current prime minister is under threat of um, no confidence votes. No prime minister in the past 70 some years of Pakistan's political life, no prime minister had been able, has been able to complete its um, full term. Mm. And Benazir was not an exception. So how, yeah, how does she, how does she lose power? Well, as I said, because when uh, General Zia tried to monopolize the power, he tried to change the constitution and add an amendment to it 
to give the power to the president rather than to the prime minister, because Pakistan is a parliamentary system where the president is a more of a, a ceremonial position, basically chosen by the winning party, right? But um, President uh, Ziaul Haq tried to change the constitution, added an amendment which gave the, gave the power to the president, taking it away from the prime minister. Under that, under that uh, amendment, the president had the right to dismiss the democratically elected government. And he did so. So that's how they, Ghulam uh, Khan used that power to dismiss her. Oh, okay. So that's what happened around the US, the um, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. That's right. Because, you know, because Pakistani government was very much dependent mm-hmm. on help that it's getting from the US. So the US is very much interested in what's going on in that country. But then, like this is, I'm, I'm actually quoting here, I'm making reference to Peter Galbert and a few other people who had been involved in Pakistani politics. And that is their reading of the timing of uh, dismissal, of dissolving uh, Benazir Bhutto's uh, government. So it seems like her reign wasn't necessarily successful, but it doesn't seem like that's really contrary to a lot of prime ministers because the system's built to make it difficult for them to implement their policies anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. No, you're totally right. That's an exactly right conclusion to make. And not only that, another thing that contributed tremendously to her not being as successful as she expected to, uh, according to one of her um, ministers, even before she came to power, even before she came to power, a plan was hatched in the military, in the by ISI, to attack or to move into Afghanistan because in 1989, under an international accord, Russians withdrew from Afghanistan. So Pakistan, because Pakistan and Afghanistan share a huge amount of ethnic population, the Pathans. So the calculation in Pakistan was that if they go to Afghanistan, now that Russians have withdrawn, then they would be treated with, uh, you know, garlands of flowers and people would be very happy. Well, Benazir disagreed with that, but she was overridden. And of course, the military went there. And they lost because Afghans were not about to, just because they happened to be Pathan, to to welcome Pakistanis. So that was another thing. But that just was under uh, Benazir Bhutto. So her attention was divided in on all these other unnecessary uh, and devious, really, plans um, to derail her uh, her uh, leadership. And she was not. I mean, she started doing something interesting for women, although I don't talk much about her policies uh, in my book. But there were certain things that she did, and very many people were um, quite appreciative. And the fact that you experience, you know, people experience this greater individual freedom, the ability to get together, even though if you may not, or many people may not have realized that then, after that, they realized what they had lost. Mm-hmm. She was one of the best pet mm-hmm. of the government. And look where Pakistan is now. 
So the second woman you highlight is Magawati Sukarnoputri, which means the daughter of Sukarno. Sukarno. Okay. And she has an interesting family history that is really important to understanding her. Um, And it also speaks to one of the sort of controversial topics within Islam about multiple marriages and things like that. So would you mind talking of telling everybody a little bit about her family history and maybe the complicated piece about multiple, you know, multiple marriages? Her father, I mean, pretty much like Pakistan, Indonesia came out of uh, a colonial uh, domination and her father, Sukarno, um, was the uh, national hero, the independent hero who um, fought against the Dutch and eventually kicked them out and declared the um, freedom of Indonesia and became the the president, the first president. He changed the constitution. He created a new constitution. He established five principles, which became the foundations of the um, political system in uh, Indonesia, and it's called Pancasila. He became very popular. I mean, you know, he was overwhelming. I remember as a child, I had heard of his name because, you know, he just was so popular, so well-liked, and he was a very interesting character. But there are very interesting things in his life, which, of course, I didn't get a chance to go into in my book. But he, you know, when he was at 20 years old, he falls in love with the wife of the headmaster where he was studying, who was like twice his age, and she marries him. So that was apparently his first wife. And then his third wife or second wife, nobody quite knows, is um, Fatmawati, Megawati's mother. and. The time that Indonesia uh, declared its independence is when this woman, Megava, um, Fatmavati, was his wife. So she became the queen. She became the first lady of Indonesia. Megavati is the first child, which actually means uh, someone born in a rainy day. It had something to do with rains and clouds and all that. It doesn't have to do with mega. Many people think that mega means big. <laughs> has nothing to do with that. It means that... Um, it's a rainy day, a Sanskrit name. Anyhow, um, Sukarno, so uh, when Sukarno decided to have another wife and bring the wife to the palace uh, to live with them, then his wife, Fatmavati, uh, Megavati's mother, decided that no, she wasn't going to accept that. And in fact, a lot of, um, I should add, a lot of um, Indonesian women disagree with that because this wasn't something to be done. This was a modern society. It was just becoming... Uh, independent from a colonial uh, regime. But anyways, he did marry and she left. And by then they had five kids and the oldest child who happened to be a son left with the mother and the oldest daughter was Megavati and she stayed with the rest of the siblings in the palace and effectively she became their surrogate mother. For about, you know, until she was 17, 18 years old when she went to college, then by then, you know, Sukarno had been a leader, a president for a long time and had started creating all kinds of popular discontent. Also, another point at that time, this is 1964, 65, we are talking about, again, we had this world that was too, um, po- the, too you know, bipolar world. 
it seemed that um, Sukarno was, you know, moving either, you know, more towards the left or towards the right. So it created all kinds of unhappiness. And again, her own, his own chief of staff, not chief of staff, sorry, military uh, leader, uh, um, staged a coup against him, took him, uh, basically imprisoned him in the palace, kept him in the palace. So at that time, uh, Megawati came back and stayed with his father, and his father was a great orator, but he gradually became very um, depressed, and he died in 1967. And by then, Suharto had become the president. So Suharto tried to dominate, suppress, and control Sukarno and his children. So the children had to lay low, they couldn't do much, and they were being oppressed. And by then, Megawati had married um, a man. But um, when she was pregnant with her second child, he, apparently he was an, uh, a pilot, I forgot exactly his um, exact position. But anyways, he had an accident, he died and he was never found. So then she had she was pregnant with her second child. Then she became infatuated by an Egyptian diplomat. And she basically eloped with him, much against her family's discontent in her chagrin. So they forced her to come back and um, they annulled the marriage after two weeks. Uh, and the argument was that, um, well, we don't know what happened to the first husband, although, you know, more than a year had passed since he had disappeared. But the argument was that, you know, she's still, her status is still is not clear, so she cannot marry this man. And they dissolved the marriage and he left. A year later, though, she married this other man. So she wasn't marrying simultaneously. It was serial marriages. So she married her husband with whom she had a daughter, but he died in 2013. Uh, so um, while the father had, you know, took advantage of the tradition to have several wives, uh, Megawati had basically or, or nominally three husbands, but then really it was more serially not uh, simultaneous. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, no, very <laughs> funny. 
<laughs> but that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, and they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So. It, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, yeah. which is really cool. So definitely if you're people interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. You know, it's interesting. I I was thinking when the mother left, how that must have been really hard to have to like pick a side. Am I on, am I with my mom who's like taking a stand against this, you know, this patriarchy system or am I with my dad who is in power and you know with my siblings and those sort of things but she was very young then you know in 1954 she was she was born 1947 so she was only seven years old so you know where do you go what do you do and then who knows whether they were forced to stay or they were given a chance to to leave I don't know but maybe the older one because he was older and I, I don't know. And yeah. maybe the parents felt it's more to their advantage to have the kids in the palace mm-hmm. rather than with the mother. Did they have contact with their mother or is she just like out of the story? No, I think they did. Although I didn't really pursue that topic. But I yes, I, I'm sure they did. The mother, unfortunately, died rather young. She had a heart attack in 1980 oh. and, and, and she died. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, they... Well, by then, Sukarno had been overthrown and Suharto was in power. So the family was under some restriction, restriction, but um, I'm assuming that they had relations. Hmm. So in 2001, Megavarti becomes the president of Indonesia. And this is after a really long struggle to make it legitimate for women to even have positions of power at all. In the book, you have this great quote from McCarthy in 1999. He said, she was a housewife. He was a dictator. Yet Megawarti's the one person in Indonesia, Suharto feared. So um, this is a huge transition. How does she go from being this like child in a palace to the person that her opponent fears the most? <laughs> why? Why? How does she get there? Very good question. You know, of course, it wasn't the transition wasn't immediately immediate. I mean, by the time the father died and she married and she was a more or less a housewife, because that's what everybody called her, a housewife. It had already been 1987. So many years had passed, almost 20 years after her father had died and her children had grown up. And then she had the... uh, freedom within the family, but also the um, ideas of being more involved in her society, plus the fact that her husband was very supportive of her. Her husband tried to encourage her. But something quite interesting happens, which, again, these are unintended. I mean, some events happen and they have some unintended consequences against what initially might have been the objective. Apparently, in 1986, 
Suharto, who also had become a president for life, realizes that he's losing his popularity. He was a dictator. His family was becoming very, uh, very prominent, but also rather corrupt because, you know, they had been controlling everything. There was a lot of discontent. People were upset. You know, not all political parties were allowed to uh, function. But uh, but um, Sukarno's party, to some extent, was allowed to function. And Suharto thinks at some point, it seems, according to the sources, that for him to gain greater popularity, because every dictator needs to have popular support. I mean, Democrats need to have popular supports too. But the the dictators need popular support and the sense of nationalism and ideology a lot more. So to try to support or gain more popularity, she he arranges for a big uh, event. And he invites, I mean, big events to say that, you know, that he's really a Democrat. He's not a, a demagogue. He's not a dictator. So he invites um, Sukarno's children. Megawati had two brothers, two sisters. One older brother and then two younger sisters and one younger brother. And the two younger sisters uh, were a lot more um, ideological and political. Political, I mean, in, in terms of uh, being um, uh, uncompromising in their political views, they reject. They don't go. The older brother doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Megavati gets encouraged by her husband. She participates in the event. And her younger brother supports her. The other two sisters get very mad at her. You know, they try to knock her down. But she goes there. And then, of course, once she becomes to the public's attention, once she has the visibility and the public sees the daughter of the national hero of Indonesia, there is a huge popular support for her. That frightened Suharto. I mean, that's when he realized that, well, maybe he didn't have a good plan trying to support, you know, uh, what is the term, wrap up his own uh, popularity, um, thinking that he would invite, you know, Sukarno's um, children. In fact, how it happened, how it worked was that that attention was focused on Megabati and she became a blood popular. So here we have, that's why he became frightened of her because his popularity was decreasing. Her popularity was increasing, and she was becoming to the public's attention. And people remembered the national hero that her father was, right? So mm-hmm. that's why Suharto was frightened of her. And he did his damnedest to um, suppress her, frighten her um, supporters, bribe her uh, the political elite who were supporting her, which he was successful in doing so. At the end, he didn't win, and she won the popular support. So she becomes president, and what was her presidency like? You know, we talked about um, Benazir, and I'm just curious, like, how different, you know, is she effective in Indonesia, or does she face some of the same, you know, conservative challenges um, and the way it, conservative in the way that, you know, the, the system's not made for change. Um, is it is it similar or different there? Um, and I, I you talk in your book about her gender being scrutinized in the press and by the public. Um, so I'm just curious what role gender played in, in her effectiveness. 
gender played a huge role, particularly initially, um, because when she gained all that popularity and she became the president of her father's party, which made Suharto very angry. Again, he tried to bribe or uh, frighten or intimidate her supporters, the elite, that is to say, to um, dissuade her from becoming so popular. Not only that, she then declared that she was going to run for president. That threw Suharto out of his mind. He went basically berserk. And at that time, he tried to, <laughs> he tried to um, co-opt a lot of the religious parties and the political elites, intimidate them, co-opt them, get them to dissuade her. She wouldn't be dissuaded. She didn't talk. I mean, she had this strategy of silence, not saying anything. And that silence seems to have played um, strategically to her political advantage. She did not give up the idea of becoming the president. But then he tried to intimidate her. He tried to co-opt other people. And then there was that whole um, hadith saying attributed to Prophet Muhammad that was pulled out of the historical uh, bag and saying that a country or a nation that leaves its affairs in the hands of a woman will not prosper, will be doomed. So that became very popular. And, you know, it was in the media and everywhere. But she didn't give up. And she argued that nothing in religion says that women cannot be leaders. So she was able to uh, counteract that. Suharto was able to manipulate her party so that the party could take her off the uh, presidential list. So she actually couldn't for a while run for the presidency. But then when um, he almost lost, I mean, he won the presidency, but he basically, the economic situation was so terrible that he had to give up, then she had a chance to become the president. And her party won most elections, but the national parliament had to decide, you know, because it wasn't a majority, a a maximum majority. So there were several parties that won a certain percentage of the votes with her party having the highest. But then they made a coalition among other parties and they made another man who happened to be her friend, Abdul Wahid, um, I think I think it's Wahid, yeah. They made him president. So she didn't become the president, even though she had the the highest vote. So you see how things can work out, you know, the way that men make the you know politicking behind the scene. But that man, Abdul Wahid, um, self-destructed after two years, and she became his prime minister. So when he had to be impeached and removed, then she became the president. Mm. Now, she's the president and all those oppositions are forgotten. Everybody's excited. She's very happy. What happens? 9-11 happens. Then the international calculations changes that impact the local um, relationships, local calculations, the economic situations, the political situations international relations, um, religious uh, oppositions, right? Altogether, though, it seems that she was actually an effective leader. She was managed, she managed to um, improve the economic situation. She managed to give uh, a lot of rights to women. 
uh, provide institutions for the welfare of mothers and children and, you know, like the poor children. So she did actually quite a few good things, which, you know, I, uh, I mean, I need to look at my own list to remember exactly what she did. But she did quite a good things. But still, you know, the culture being so conservative that when she ran for the second time, second time to be president, a military leader won the presidency. She didn't win for the second time, but she was so um, powerful in the country that she still, still up to this date, actually not maybe right now, but I mean, until 2020, she was the head, the president of her own party. And there was a huge celebration for her 70th birthday. So it means that how much the culture has come to appreciate what she has done for the country. So altogether, we can say, yes, she was a good uh, leader. But then uh, she didn't get reelected because of all kinds of um, circumstances Mm. that um, still made people to vote for a male military leader. And as I said, 9-11 was a very important event nationally and, of course, internationally. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, world politics and, you know, things like the invasion of Kuwait and then 9-11 impacted both of these, both of these women um, and, and their ability to, to keep doing what they're doing. It's interesting, you mentioned early on how both of these women are leading countries in a time, you know, before the United States has never had a female president. (laughs) And um, it strikes me just how the perception, especially of the two countries we're talking about today, um, is that they're oppressive to women. And yet both of these countries have beat the United States and other Western nations to, to having these women in positions of power. So I'm just curious what you think, you know, what is the legacy of these women and how should we, how should we, especially in the West, remember them and and what they mean for Muslim women leading abroad? Um, Let me just answer the first part of your question, which I think is very important, because when we say that, look, in these two uh, Muslim countries, we've had women political leaders at that level, at the highest uh, level of political office, whereas in the U.S., which is the most advanced uh, society, community, I mean, a country in the world, we were not able to elect a woman president. The differences here that which we need to keep in mind. These two women had the dynastic uh, privilege they were both from very important uh, political families, political clans. Mm. And that gave them a huge advantage, right? Plus the wealth, plus the um, prestige and all that. But then there's a big difference between these women and the majority of women in their own countries, particularly in Pakistan. Women live in abject poverty in much of Pakistan. So we can't say just because Pakistan was able to democratically elect a woman twice, it means that it's more advanced or it's more democratic or it's more progressive than the U.S. It's because of all these other conditions that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. The majority of women don't have it Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, well made for them. These women, as I said, you know, dynastic succession is very important. That's the whole idea of my book. You know, I talk about succession and how important the role of succession. So these women had that. Um, Hillary could have actually trust, I mean, related to Bill, but maybe that in that case would have worked against him. <laughs> but anyways, but in, in America, there's a greater uh, um, opposition, much greater opposition to women at that uh, highest level of political power. It is, it is overcoming. But on the other hand, in the past two, uh, two decades, we have seen a huge number of women who have come to power and who are now able to change the rules of politics. So that's one of the points I'm making in my book. And that is, unless women have a seat at the political table, they will not be able to change the rules that have been set in place for millennia by, by patriarchy. So those who change those pat patriarchal rules, women need to be at the political table. In societies like Pakistan and Indonesia, those women are already on the top because of the dynastic uh, uh, connection. But to then connect with the majority of people, to be able to effect meaningful democratic changes, <laughs> they face a lot more uh, oppositions, right? So that's the important differences we have to keep uh, in mind when we say, well, in America, you know, people haven't been able to have a president. Yes, but then there are all these other reasons that we have to keep into account. And what was the rest of your question? So I guess my my latter part is, you know, with that context, how do we how do we remember these women? What's the takeaway that that these two women did what they did? Well, um, well, I think it is important. Uh, there's a big difference between Pakistan and Indonesia in as far as they remember these women. In Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto became a powerful woman that could win her third run for prime minister. And that uh, struck terror in the hearts of the male political elite. And for that, they had to eliminate her physically. She was killed. Now, many people realize the kind of leader she was and the kind of objectives, democratic objectives, that she had to improve society institutionally individually you know community for community and what have you in indonesia megabati even though she didn't win the uh, presidency for the second time she stayed in politics she maintained her position as the president of her um, party and she was very much able to control and direct and influence who would become the next um, president uh, of, of um, Indonesia to the point that when last time the current president, I think it's Jokova Widodo, was to run for the presidency, he had to wait until she supported him. She endorsed him. So it is important to see these women are not forgotten. Unfortunately, Benazid was killed, but her legacy continues. Many people are thinking about it. That doesn't die. I mean, even though, you know, many people may 
question how good she was, how bad she was, whether she was corrupt, her husband was corrupt, not corrupt, what have you. The legacy remains. But for Megavati, it is actually there. It's a lot more in the popular um, dialogue, imaginations, interactions. So I think it'll have a good um, influence. Dr. Hayuri, I am so grateful to you. Thank you so much for coming on and enlightening me and our listeners about all of these different nuances of how these women come to power, um, why their power is significant and important, and of course, the contrast and comparison between them, between the West. This is just really powerful to um to, to think about and important for us to think about um, the way that women lead and are allowed to lead. And for our audience, I hope they go back. And if you missed the first two episodes to really put in context, the way that women leaders are seen in, um, in the Muslim world is, is really important, especially with the Hadith you briefly mentioned in this episode, we spend a lot of time on that in the, in the first episode with you. Um, and of course, everyone should go and find your book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam. This is uh, available on Amazon and we'll have links to it in our show notes. So seriously, thank you so much for your time and your energy sharing this with everybody. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed meeting you and I'm very uh, impressed by the work you and your colleagues are doing. And I wish you all the best. I look forward to reading and looking and listening to other podcasts that you have and please keep me posted and thank you very much oh thank you thanks so much for listening to remedial her story the other 50 percent. please subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation we really appreciate that effort until next time <laughs>